Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Trent. And I'm Mackenzie. Uh, and today we are talking about uh, a new play um, called Yellowjack. That was one of the finalists in uh, Wild Imaginings. Um, Epiphanies. Epiphanies. <laughs> my, bl- my brain just went blank. Like literally just. Richard, it was just looking at me like. No words. What is that festival called, Trent? <laughs> um, but it yeah. was one of the finalists for Epiphanies yeah. last year at Wild Imaginings. It was. It was one of our final four. Mm-hmm. Brishina actually directed the staged reading of it last year, which makes mm-hmm. it extra embarrassing that she forgot what Epiphanies was <laughs> called. Um, but and I was in it, so my brain was fried. <laughs> yeah, she was in it. She directed it. And you'll actually get to hear, hear her read a monologue that is from the character that she played. Um so no pressure, but it like should probably be pretty good. Um, the play is written by Donna Latham. We don't want to go any further without naming her. She is a fantastic playwright, and she tends to write in the realm of history, um, but a feminist perspective on history, which we love. Um, and as we hear the monologues and talk a little bit more about what the play is doing, I think you'll understand why that perspective is so important. Um, before we dive into Brishina, um, I that sounded weird. Before we dive into Brishina's monologue, I mean, we could dive into you if we maybe a whole podcast will be about you later. But like, she probably needs therapy first. I don't know. Say, yeah. Um. <laughs> anyway, but no. So we're gonna dive into her monologue, not her as a human today. Anyway, Love but it. just a little bit of background about the play. Um, It deals with the plague of yellow fever that broke out, and it is fascinating. It takes place in Memphis, and people left. I mean, people just fled the city when this plague took place. No one knew what was causing it. No one understood what was going on. The science wasn't adding up. There, There was a lot happening, but people left but i might say that means people with means left Mm -hmm. right so it's not that memphis was empty it's just that people who were able to leave then left so the people who were behind still in memphis 
were the people that couldn't afford to leave, as is so often the case with history. Um, and so this is a beautiful play about people banding together regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of where they found themselves situated in society pre-plague. They had to band together and create this found family in order to simply survive. Yeah. So with that background, Rashina, take us away. Her character is Omi Friday. Don't profit nothing to trap hatred in my heart, but I do despise the color red. Granny Judah was born in Africa. Folks in Granny's village owned few pretty things. There were no red colors in cloth. No cloth at all. Granny was captured when she was five years old. When grown-up villagers set off to labor in fields, they laid the caution on children, warned them to scuttle up trees, but stay put. Beware of evil strangers who lurked about, strangers who'd capture as many children as they could seize, trick them with flashy gee-gaws, trinkets, bells, beads, shiny stuff to dazzle children. One blazing morning... Granny peeked from the safety of her tree, spied strangers with pale faces, stringy ginger hair, scarlet scarves at their throats. One man dropped a small piece of red flannel, left it on the ground. Kids leapt from the trees, grabbed for the fabric. A little further on, stranger dropped a larger piece. Kids bolted after him and on and on till stranger reached the river. He whipped a large piece smack into the water. Kids giggled, dove in, tussled for the cloth. Granny lunged for it, snatched it up, waved it overhead, then tied the dripping cloth at her throat, just like the rogue. Stranger swam farther and farther out, plopped a line of red in the water behind him, like a farmer dropping corn to get chickens to roost at night, or a shark leaving a trail of blood after it devours prey. Finally, when Stranger reached the ship, dropped the largest piece on the plank, enticed children on board, where he had the advantage, herded as many children as he could. Stranger chained the gate, trapped the kids, lickety-split, the ship sailed away. It captured young ones and shattered hearts on the shore. Well, that's the evil story. Granny Judah, just a baby, bamboozled, captured, kidnapped, sold in America. In Africa, Granny had the fever dozens of times, protected her from catching fever in America. Sure, the hell wasn't enough to clear the evil, but it was some kind of blessing. Granny's in my bones, in my blood. She protects me from fever now. Mm. I love that monologue. That's so good. Um... I think Mackenzie and I probably have thoughts, but you literally played this character and directed this show, so I would love for you to go first. Yeah. Um, one of the things that first intrigued me about Yellow Jack, um, first off, I like shows that embody concepts, mm. and Yellow Jack, spoiler alert, is literally a character in the show, and he is Yellow Fever. He is the plague coming through the town. Um, and I thought that was a really cool concept. So that's what I really, that's what really drew me to the play. Um, and then also the like historical accuracy of it. Not a lot of people know this, but a lot of people from um, 
African countries and uh, like sub-Saharan Africa, they have an immunity to malaria through their DNA. Um, I am one of those families. My mom has uh, what's it called G6PD, which was a great thing um, over in Africa because it was it made you immune to malaria, which you know was yellow fever and that sort of thing. Um, over here, we don't talk about it as much because that's not as much of a concern anymore. So I was really interested by the historical accuracy of that because that is something that directly affects my family. Um, sickle cell was also one of those diseases that, oh, you would prevent you from getting malaria. And now it is, you know, since we don't use it anymore, um, it can be quite a problem. So it's a very, very interesting to me, um, where I could see those things in my family. Um, and then the other part was literally this monologue itself. Um, it talks about, you know, the connection still to slavery, um, that, it's not even that far back at this point. It's just like a generation. Um, she's talking about her, her grandmother. Almi Friday is talking about her grandmother in this monologue. And so that means that she was a slave herself. Her mother was a slave. And they've just, just gotten free of that. Um, and I really like talking about slavery as something present because it's not that long ago. Um, even today. So I really liked that. And then, of course, like the parallels to the pandemic, which we were just coming out of at the time that we were putting this on. And so it felt very like, oh, history is cyclical and we're going through another cycle of this this plague, this sort of sickness. Um, And it was it was just I love history. And so it was very interesting from a historical perspective. And then the conventions in the play, um, it's very it's not super realism, but it's realistic enough to where you're like, wow, this this really happened. So I was really interested in that. Um, playing Omi Friday, um, I actually like went back and like looked at, you know, history um, for my family and, you know, saw if maybe we were around Memphis at that time. We weren't. Um, but I looked back at the women in my family and how they handled sickness that was happening around them. Um, some of my family is originally from Florida. Some of them are from Texas. And so I like looked back in those areas and like what was happening and um, seeing like, you know, the home remedies that we have passed down from those times um, and sort of drew on those influences to play on me Friday in the show. And it was really cool. I just had, I had such a good time working on this play. It was so informative and interesting um, from a history perspective. And I think that Omi Friday's religiosity is super interesting as well because it's so deeply part of her character. And yet it, it like stands somewhere in between. It feels really foreign in some ways, right? Like I don't think that it, I don't think that they are practices or even words when she prays sometimes. I don't think that they are words or concepts that people are familiar with. And yet there's something still very familiar about it, right? She's very connected to the land. She is deeply entrenched in, you know, the stars and the weather and the way in which the air feels and the way that the winds shift, right? There's something very familiar about it, even though I think a lot of people watching or reading don't fully understand where she's coming from, right? But it's so a part of her and her story and her family 
um, that I and it's part of how she is able in her mind to battle Yellow Jack, mm-hmm. right? She's the most fearless of anyone in the show. And I think I love how you pointed out the historical accuracy of her being immune to this disease. But she, in the context of the script, doesn't recognize her own immunity as like this biological thing. She recognizes it as a source of her great faith, Mm -hmm. right? And I I love that interplay of what we now know to be historically accurate science. But for her as a character at this time, it's because she is a woman of faith. Um, And that plays out, I think, really beautifully through the play. Yeah, I... This play also hit me at a very interesting intersection in my spiritual journey um, because I I do believe in a higher power. I believe in, you know, God, the creator, that sort of thing. But I also believe in a bunch of other stuff. And so, like, this idea that you could worship God in different ways was very interesting to me. And that's exactly what Only Friday, like, does in the play. She may not call um him god she may not call this this being god but she is worshiping mm-hmm. um the creator of the universe sort of thing and she is very reverent to the universe she's very reverent to the land because this is what the creator made for us sort of thing so i i loved that about her and then of course like a lot of the spiritual references were very historically accurate like um the the color like she uses blue um, glass to trap mosquitoes sort of thing, which is a like historically accurate spiritual practice. Um, I And now, of course, I forget what, what blue means, but it meant something to use blue specifically to ward off plague. Um, it was a sign of protection, I believe, a color of protection in, you know, some spiritual circles. And those things are still used today in hoodoo, in voodoo, in santeria, in all of these religions that were, you know, are still considered kind of fringe religions um, that y- mix, um, you know, spiritualities um, from different faiths they still use a lot of these like practices today. And so that was super interesting to me. I loved that. Um, and I loved that it all existed in one play mm-hmm. without, without being like, oh, we can't, we can't have this practice. It's not godly enough. It was like, no, everybody has to believe what they have to believe um, in order to get us through. And that doesn't make anyone any less important in the show. And that, and I love that you say that, right? So we talk about only Friday a lot, but then there are other characters who, are not of the same. I mean, she's the only person who has her particular set of beliefs, mm-hmm. right? And then you have one character who pretty clearly doesn't believe in anything, mm-hmm. right? And then you have one character who believes in science. And then we also have, and this is the monologue that Mackenzie is going to read for us, we have a nun. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. about how most people would describe opposite ends of the spectrum right Mm -hmm. and yet that's not how these characters see each other in the play at all um so before we keep talking Mackenzie, this has been the perfect segue why don't you go ahead and read for us what you have from sister gregory yeah i stumbled upon two young girls Poor children trapped two days in a one-room cottage with the bodies of their parents, their uncle in utmost suffering, delirium. It was 24 hours before I could arrange burial of those fearful corpses. I summoned a constable before any undertaker would enter that wretched room. I crawled home, collapsed into bed, first time in three nights. Much to the hue and cry among you, dear friends. Forgive me, please. Forgive me terrifying you with my absence. Sorrow is always part of me, the enduring companion of my life. However, I sometimes unearth the door of hope, keep it wide open. We easily say in this sad world, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. But it's terribly hard to say thy will be done. Wow. Um, This particular monologue happens like in the throes of the plague, Sister Gregory has chosen to go into the city and be of service, actually against the wishes of her superior, who doesn't think that the people she's helping are worthy of her help. He, he deems them unclean, unpure, um, and worries for Sister Gregory's safety and soul and she decides to go. Mm-hmm. Um, Mackenzie, tell us, I mean, why this character, why this monologue, and what, what speaks to you about her or the play at large? Yeah, um, I love feminist history plays. No, um, they're kind of my favorite thing. No, never! Um, but I think what really stood out to me about this character is obviously she has a very difficult confrontation with the institution of the church and religion and her faith but what i find so beautiful and resilient about her character is her ability and her will to stay true to her beliefs regardless of what the institution wants her to do and i just i find that really relevant for me i think sometimes the institution of the capital c church its treatment of women and other minorities is highly problematic and there's a long deep dark history on that but i think there's something so beautiful and powerful about her conviction in her faith regardless of the institution yeah i i that is why i like sister gregory a lot is that she 
she disobeys, which by, uh, you know, Catholic rules puts her soul in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And she decides Uh that this is an important thing for her to do for her faith. So I I really admire Sister Gregory in the show for that. And to just up the stakes, who, where she goes in order to help is a brothel turned hospital. Right. So it's not that the priest is like, oh, don't go help at the hospital in the city. I mean, she's going to a brothel. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, like, from his perspective, you can understand at a certain level his hesitation, but then also not at the same time. Right. Because we're talking about human life. Mm -hmm. But it it is. It is dark, though. Right. And so it's understandable at some level with his training and his experience why he hesitates and yet she doesn't hesitate for a moment. She goes straight into the lion's den, as it were. Um, but Mackenzie, as the historian, I want you to talk to this just a little bit more. There's something really beautiful about this band of women who come together, look out for each other, take care of each other, take care of everyone that they can collectively together. and. Isn't that in many ways historically accurate that it actually would be the women doing these things and yet we rarely credit them historically with that? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Time and time again throughout history, um, I mean, and they don't they don't teach you this in your standardized history textbooks. Um, I you learn this in a women's history class is women are the ones who are banding together and going, as you said earlier, into the lion's den. Women are the ones who band together and are doing the dirty work to make things get done. And they are the ones building and maintaining community. And I, I just, I love the community and bond of women in this play. I think it is so beautiful. Yeah. I think it's most illustrated. I think it's best illustrated in the dinner scene that they have where Mm. like everybody gets together all of the people that they found and brought into community, they all get together and they sit down and have dinner every night. And that's a ritual for them. They all, no matter what is happening, mm. they make sure to leave and come back home, uh, I say in quotation marks, um, to have dinner together, to com- to have community with one another, to nourish themselves because they keep telling each other, you can't, you know, you can't pour out of an empty cup. You have to fill up yourself before you go back out into the world. So we make sure to nourish ourselves. We make sure to have community with each other. And we take our time to be spiritual. And it's also at this dinner that they start off with a prayer every evening. And it always looks different depending on who's praying. But they always have a prayer. And they always have this time together where they meet and sit together and and have food. And it's, it's such a sweet like moment in the play because you don't see that all the time and it's it's nice to think of like them taking care of themselves and taking care of each other like it's nice to see that within the show that is about them taking care of other people they are taking care of each other so it's it's very sweet i like that moment in the play a lot it's definitely one of my favorite moments i think that I mean, Donna has done something really remarkable with this play. I, it brings together such diverse perspectives and backgrounds and yet unifies them in a way that you rarely get to see firsthand. Um, 
and and it's a found family, right? I mean, these women come together, and it doesn't matter that they believe different things, and it doesn't matter that their past lives are so radically different from one another. What matters is that they care about the city and the people in it, and consequently each other, because they're on the same page and hold the same values. Yeah. And I think what what made it so endearing, especially after coming out of the pandemic, was we had such division (laughs) within the pandemic Mm -hmm. that it was like, it's nice to look back at the times that we could come together and make decisions for the common good, for us to think of not just ourselves, but also our fellow man. Um, it, it, It hit in a way that really just felt very close to home at the time and even now. Yeah, and I think that that's maybe the beauty of writing history plays when done well, right? Is that even though it's a very particular moment in history, it still continues to reflect our present circumstance. Um, and in a, in a perhaps weirder way than a history play would usually reflect the present circumstance, this pandemic of yellow fever, this plague that occurred so eerily mirrored in so many ways the pandemic that we all experienced so recently um and so as you said history is cyclical like history does repeat itself and so what is there for us to learn from even if it's historically fictionalized experiences such as this where is the truth inside of it that we can pull from and learn from i love that Mackenzie, you have to say something about the history plays because otherwise you'll explode. Oh, okay. Well, I just, right now, my current, like, correct factoid that this play nails in the head is with, okay, I'm going to, like, butcher her name. Is it Dr. Bernstein? Yeah. 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 Okay. Her. Um, so she studied in London. Um, and so this play takes place in 1878. Germ theory began over in Europe in 1861, and so the idea of germ theory, especially in the States, is exceptionally new, and the character of Dr. Bernstein, um, she experiences some pushback from some scientific men in this play, not only because she's a woman, but also because they aren't educated in what like germ theory is as much and so right now i'm like just super hung up on like advanced woman in stem yeah and i I, love that i love that you (laughs) pointed that out Uh, and i think it it first of all points to how masterful donna is at writing history plays right Mm -hmm. i mean details like that it's so easy to just read and take for granted but it tracks historically so well right um, and it, in so many different ways, as you and Bertina have both pointed out now. And yet, as, as you're saying, it still tracks forward so nicely. I mean, how many women's experiences to be the more highly educated person in the room and still not be the one whose voice is heard? <laughs> I'm nervous laughing, laughter because uh, that hits so hard. So hard. Awkward thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. 
it it is a it is a universal experience, I think, for for women to be in a Word. room where you are the the smartest person in the room, whether that is on paper or just by your knowledge base. And everyone's like, "But you're not normal." <laughs> and they don't don't say that but that's what it means yeah Yeah. because as soon as the guy across the room says what you said louder they're like oh my god that's a great idea we absolutely have to go with jeremy's idea and you're like but i just i I would yeah so i was gonna say that actually and this i feel like it's happened with us before actually brishina but like i so i shot i'm a man so I don't have this experience firsthand, but I see it happen so much. And the thing that I do, because I'm annoying, is if it happens in a room that I feel like I can make a difference in, then like if a woman says something and it's ignored, then I'll on purpose say the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that then when people are like, oh my gosh, that's such a good idea, then I can be like, Oh, well, why didn't you like it when Brashina said it just a second ago? Yeah. And then everyone gets real uncomfortable. And I'm like, oh, we didn't realize that's what just happened? That's awkward. <laughs> <laughs> it is very fun to witness. <laughs> it is. But, yeah. But it, it it's shocking mm-hmm. how easily it occurs and how often it occurs. And mm-hmm. the fact that this is a play that takes place, as Mackenzie mentioned, a hundred and almost 50 years ago 145 right well it's still happening Mm -hmm. it's still happening women continue to be the drivers of change in so many spaces and yet they're not the ones who are listened to no not often and it to me it hits at that like historical precedent for things Mm. is that like historically we have just pushed women to the side and be like, no, no, it's not important. Um, but thank you for talking, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and, but the and reason we were pushed to the side was because they were afraid of us because we were too smart. Yeah. Period. Yeah. I don't know how many times I've heard the words emasculated in context with you said something that was absolutely correct, but you made somebody feel blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Okay, but that's not my problem. <laughs> if I was right, then I'm right. It doesn't matter how that made the other person feel because what I'm saying is not objective, it's a fact. Yeah, the term white fragility has come kind of into popular vernacular because of the book that was written by that title, right? Mm-hmm. Something we don't talk about enough yet is male fragility. It's very real. Yes, yes it is. That's a whole other podcast episode, but it absolutely is. But I think that's why what Donna is doing is so important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is that when you talk about historical precedent, so when we write plays like this with feminist perspective, when we produce plays like this with feminist perspective, then we're almost in a way reestablishing new precedent, right? So that we can reinterpret history through new lenses so that hopefully we can then rewrite our present with new precedents in mind. Yeah. It's the telling the stories of the forgotten brings everybody up sort of thing. Um, and I really like that about this about this play. 
in that we have definitely heard about like outbreaks happening across you know the world over the one that i always remember is the one that brought us the balto run um mm. <laughs> that one i don't know why for whatever reason in the 90s they were just like this needs to be a cartoon and all the kids need to learn about it it was every like reading book that we had to read to like learn every primer that we had to use to learn how to read or whatever was the balto story about you know the medicine getting to alaska and saving the children and that was a man that was behind all of that we don't hear about the nurses the women who were behind those things who were like hey doc we need to get more things out here um well and in that story you don't even hear about the man it's literally a dog dog. (laughs) literally the dog like there are more dog heroes in history than women heroes i think (laughs) that dog has a statue to him (laughs) and they're like women i don't know (laughs) seems odd seems odd we'd give a woman a statue um but (laughs) like we don't hear very often about these stories and when we were talking in um uh, in the pandemic when we were talking about unsung heroes a lot of the pictures like you you might not have noticed but a lot of them were of male doctors you know, when we were when they were doing campaigns about getting vaccinated or campaigns about staying home to make sure you're taking care of your community, there was always at least one black doctor, <laughs> one white woman nurse, um, and then the rest it was just kind of like whatever fits the demographic of that area. But there was always it always started off with a white male doctor being like, "You need to stay home for the betterment of your community," or whatever they said on there. It was very interesting to watch those campaigns roll through, and I was just like, this seems very weird, Mm -hmm. considering that a lot of our medical system is fueled by women in every area. But it's one of those things where, um, and I noticed this a lot, that male nurses are always praised for their, oh my gosh, you so patient and so compassionate or like when you have like male teachers or male children's pastors right like people who are in church spaces with children or educational spaces or medical spaces and then like the all of the women who are there and it's way more women who are nurses and teachers and educators in churches and other spaces than men right Yes. But you don't hear them being praised for their compassion. It's like the same idiocy where, like, if I am holding a baby, I'm a great dad because I'm a man. I was gonna bring this up. Yeah, I'm like, they're like, oh my god, you're such a good dad, and I'm like, but it's, I'm not a dad for the record. But like, if I were, like, I could hold a baby, and they'd be like, oh my gosh, you're such a good dad, and I like, I could have never changed a diaper in my whole life. I could never have gotten up when it cried at night in my whole life. But because I'm holding it in public, I'm such a good dad. It's because that's female-centered work. Like, those are most of the professions that you named are female-dominated areas. Yes. Right? However, we do not put the same respect to those women who are in those areas because we're like, that's that's cute that you want a job. And the what's very funny is that, like, these things were not the case back 
in uh, I think World War Two is really where we see the switch. Um, but in uh, before World War Two, um, most of these were male dominated areas. Nurses were mostly men. Doctors were mostly men. Like the medical career field was mostly men because they would not allow women in, right? And then once World War II hits and we see more women going into the workforce and them having to take these jobs, because first off, they probably had the education because most of them were college educated to begin with. Um, and then that we did not have, we sent all the men off to war. So we had to have more women in the workforce in order to keep uh, the, in order to keep things going. That's when we really see the switch to like, oh, I don't need to respect nurses as much. Like it could be mostly more men. Um, you know, that's fine. And then when we see a male nurse, we're like, oh, my God, wow, he's doing such great work because he's in a f m like the majority of the women in his field. Well, the majority of his coworkers are women and he's an outlier in that he's a male nurse, which is very interesting. Um, but yeah, I I hate that. <laughs> it's an interesting phenomenon that I hate. Yeah, and I, I but. What's funny is you talk about men in female-dominated fields, but then we don't call out women in male-dominated fields in the same way. Nope. Not even a little bit. Not even close. I <laughs> One of my favorite things, I was a cheerleader in high school, if you couldn't tell by my boisterous personality. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so one of the things that used to make me so angry is that there are no scholarships for cheerleading. Um, they... Even though, like, cheerleader, like, competition cheerleaders are some of the best athletes in the world. It's hardcore. Yeah. They are studying tumbling. They run. They do weightlifting. All sorts of things. Competition cheer is amazing. Everyone should watch it. Um, but there's no scholarships for cheerleading. It's not even a fully recognized, like, at the time, they were trying to get it as a fully recognized sport, I think, in the NCAA. Um, and they were like, mm, cheerleading is cute or whatever. Like, it's fine, but it's not a real sport. Like, that was that was a thing that I heard growing up as a cheerleader. It's like, cheerleading is not a real sport. And I was like, I'm lifting girls <laughs> every day in cheer practice. And all the football players have to do is, is throw a ball. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, it's it's funny. <laughs> but like it was cheerleading was originally a male sport. Yeah. And yeah. when it flipped, that's when we start to see people disrespect it. And so mm -hmm. that's what always would like make me angry is that like, you know, the and oh, and don't let there be a male cheerleader in the room. Everyone's going to be like, you're so brave. Or gay. What? Yeah, I mean, right? If yeah, he's gay, he's not true. brave. It's only straight men that would be brave to do cheerleading. If You're they're right. gay, it's ju it just makes sense. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because gay men aren't male or female. They're like this weird in between thing, right? Yeah, that's a whole other conversation oh that we can have because you're like not masculine enough, but you're not feminine enough. So like, what even are you? It's very confusing for everyone, apparently. Um, Infuriating. <laughs> that's what, that's we, what we all are. <laughs> yes. Um, but I think it seems like we've gotten off track, but I really don't think that we have because I think that it's the conversations that this place sparks and does such a good job sparking because it is set in a very specific place in history. And this harkens back to one of our very first episodes when we talked about the fact that the more specific a play is actually the more relatable that it becomes. 
And even though this is a play set in a specific year, in a specific city, it still speaks to our contemporary circumstance. And that's the beauty of a well-written history play. And it's the beauty of what Donna has done with these beautifully crafted characters that come into each other's lives. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So I think, I mean, we could talk about Yellowjack all day. It's just one of those plays. Yeah. But we are going to wrap it up, I think. We're going to get Donna on one of these episodes. Um, Yay. Yeah. <laughs> we just, we need to hear from her because she's brilliant. Yeah. So um, you have that to look forward to. Um, we're working on it. She knows. I'm not just like saying that, hoping that it might one day occur. She's <laughs> like, oh, I'd love to do that. So no, we're definitely going to have Donna here on here at some point, um, which we're thrilled about. We would love to pick her brain about playwriting and history and women and her journey and how she became as brilliant as she is. Um, But do y'all have any final thoughts about this play or about history plays before we wrap up? Pay women. You heard it here first. Yes. Pay women. No. Yeah. It's like ridiculous that that even has to be said, but like, yes, affirmed, agreed, exalted. You heard it. Pay women. Is this play on New Play Exchange? We should have checked that before we did this episode, shouldn't we? So what you should Wait, do is... The file you sent us said NPX in it. Hang I on. think it did. Yeah, um, it's on New Play Exchange. Okay, so it is on New Play Exchange. We should have checked before, but we didn't. But we checked just now in real time. So go on New Play Exchange. We've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. And it is Yellow Jack by Donna Latham. Yes, it's so good. You will not regret it. No, you will not. Read it. Produce it, maybe get in touch with her. It's it's worthwhile. Yes, have a world premiere. Well, I mean, I'm we might want to have the world premiere first. No, I'm just kidding. It's worthwhile. If you want a world premiere, I won't fight you for it. I might just be sad. You will. We can just delay the release of this episode. <laughs> uh, no, we want you to go read the play right now. And if it is in your heart to produce it, then you should because it is worthwhile. And we love Donna and we love this play. Um, but Mackenzie, tell them where they can find more about us now that we've told them where they can find this play. Okay, we are on Instagram at Imagine This Theater Pod, theater with an R E, and Wild Imaginings Waco, or you can find us on our website at wildimaginingswaco.com or through our wonderful producers, Rogue Media Network. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about plays and history and women and all the things that just get us excited to get up and go to work in the morning. The fact that we get to call this work, (laughs) really amazing. But so thank you so much. We appreciate you being here and joining us to experience a little piece of Yellow Jack. Thank you for joining us to imagine this. (laughs) 